morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, we're going to look over this text that Kat just read for us, but, but first, I just want to remind you, if you were with us last week, we ended with this idea of the good work that God has begun in us, that God's going to bring to completion in us. If you were here, uh, we, we talked about there being a good work in us as individuals, a good work in us as a church body, and a good work in globally. And what, what are those good works? Even if you weren't with us, that's just something good to be reflecting on. What is this lasting work that God has invited me to be a part of that I can have hope and courage that God will bring to completion? And so it's important to remember that as we start this next section. And, and we read this in Philippians 1.7. It is right for me to think this way about you. Because I hold you in my heart, for all of you are my partners in God's grace, both in my imprisonment, in the defense, and confirmation of the gospel. So last week we had a little, a little Greek phrase go up here, if you remember, where we had a decision to make as readers. Because, because one of the words was left out, we needed to either decide if we believe that Paul was writing that... Uh, he was grateful every time I remember you or every time you remember me. Do you remember that when we put that up there? Okay, this is where it matters today. Uh, because I hold you in my heart. Whatever you chose last week is the same thing you'll choose today. So if you thought that, okay, I think Paul is saying every time I remember you, then you would also read this as because I hold you in my heart because it's the same kind of grammatical thing that's happening. It would be the same pattern. Or if you felt like it's, no, he, he's grateful because he's in prison and he's moved every time they remember him, then you would read this, because you hold me in your heart. And if you look at English translations, you go to Bible Gateway and just flip through them, you'll see some of the translations go either way. Again, it, it doesn't change the book. It doesn't change the letter. But I, I think it's important for us to just know that some of these things are up to our discernment. And for me, when I read this, I, I really think it is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. That's the way I'm, I feel some conviction. I think that lines up with the way that, that Paul is talking. But either way, the same thing is going on. And I want you to pay attention to where Paul is placing things throughout the letter. Right here, whoever's heart it is, he believes that people are holding each other in their heart. Now, he doesn't mean literally you're going in there and placing people in your heart. But we use this kind of language, right? We use language like this, like, oh, that person is dear to my heart. Every time I remember that person, it stirs my heart. Or it's warm in my heart. Those kind of things, right? That's, that's what we have here. It's something that's pretty familiar. It's a lovely statement. And this place represents this life and love where he holds them. But the question that I have for you are, who are the people that you hold in your heart? And who are the people who hold you in their heart? It's an important thing to be reflecting on. Who do you hold dear? The, the person that you pay at the gas station? The, the Uber driver? I'll tell you, a couple weeks ago, I had one of those rides where that driver held my life in their hands. 
and I wasn't sure if we were going to win. And we did, and now that person is much more dear to me when he brought me to Target on time and alive. Maybe your neighbors, have they become somebody who was just distant and you happen to just live next to one another and then over time they've held a place in your heart or maybe the people you worship with here. Maybe your parents or your best friends. Who, who are the people that you hold dear? Paul holds this church of people for a very specific reason and they hold him for a very specific reason. You see, they're partners in grace and, and we don't use that phrase very much. But there's an old phrase that when you say it, people kind of smile because we know what it means. These are like ride-or-die friends. You know what I mean? These are folks you're going down with. These are the friends that, hey, no matter what you're going through, I'm there. If you call, I'm going to figure out a way to be there. They're committed to one another. They've been through something together and they're now bonded. They went through something before, and now they, they lean on one another. You, you know people like this, I hope. If you don't, I want to invite you to lean in here and let some of the people here earn that place as ride-or-die folk for you. Two, two of my friends who I've been friends with for a long time reached out to me this week because they saw a picture of me and they were alarmed. They wondered what happened and if it was on purpose. I said, I'm all good, but they didn't believe me. And we had a conversation, and we had these long conversations. And it was the kind of thing where every time we, we reconnect, we're reminded, hey, anything you're going through, I'm there. Anything, I'm there. I'm with you. And that's what we have here. And it's not just out of nowhere. This didn't just appear for them. This... This was a bit like what we talked about last week. Their sleeves were up and their hands were dirty together, starting this church, seeing God at work within them. But then some more stuff happened. Paul ended up in a Roman prison. Now next week in our resource page online and a little bit in the sermon, we're going to talk about Roman prisons because it's, it's different enough from ours that it makes some sense to talk about. And also, we have not learned to treat people any better than they did way back then, and we need to talk about that. So in both our, our sermon next Sunday and in our resources, I want to encourage you, uh, this week the resources on love, next week it's going to be on what prison looked like then, and uh, what we better start doing about that now. But an interesting thing that, that comes up in this week for us is you only go to prison before your court date. Prison wasn't punitive then. It wasn't the punishment. You, you went to prison until you could get into court. There's different levels of it, and it'll be in the resource page, and different. It, it, it was not good. I'm not glamorizing it. it. You could, if you were really wealthy, and you were really trustworthy, and you were a citizen, you could just be like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang at Rob's house, and Rob's in trouble if I don't show up. Or you could be in a hole. And, and be there a long time. And they were very unjust with when the court date came up and all of those kind of things. But after the court date, you didn't go back to prison. That was never the consequence. That was never the punishment. So anytime we read this, the Paul is in prison. That means there's a trial coming. And I don't know if you ever wondered, but what's the offense? What's he on trial for? 
Well, Paul's on trial for treason. He's not on trial with the Jewish leaders where it would be like, hey, he's speaking against our God. He's on trial in Rome with the Roman authorities for treason. I don't know if you like that word. I I would not want that word next to my name. Now or then. The the punishment for treason has never been light. They've never taken into account how likable you are if you're being charged with treason. And that's what he's facing. That's what this charge is. And this is an honor-shame culture where if your friend is on trial for treason, you probably don't want to associate a lot because there's shame there and it might come back on you. Maybe you're treasonous as well. And we all hear stories, hopefully we hear stories of how people feel who are in prison today. It's, it's the same where there's a loneliness, there's a pain that is there. There's this ache of like, am I abandoned? And for Paul, he was not. Because he had these ride-or-die friends who stood with him, even though it might blow back on them. Who sent money, encouragement, letters, notes, clothing, sandals, books. They're with them. That's the type of relationship we're talking about throughout this series. That type of loyalty. It's like, yeah, being associated with you might blow back on me, but... I cannot be me without being associated with you. That's what this is. And so he longs for his friends. We see in the text that he, he, uh, he longs for, for them with the tender affection of Christ Jesus. Okay. The Greek doesn't say tender affection. We're not going to get into Greek every time, but this one is weird. And when it's weird, I get really excited. <laughs> the Greek word is really, really messy, for real. The word for this is the entrails, the innards, the guts, the, the big and little intestines, the, all the inside stuff. The only way that I ever think of this is like if you're hunting or you're fishing, and you feel dress an animal. All that you leave there is what he's talking about. He longs for his friends with the innards. Not his own innards, but the innards of Christ Jesus. That's why we choose tender compassion. <laughs> it fits nicer on a card or on a cross stitch. I mean, that would be my favorite Valentine card ever. I long for you with the entrails of Jesus. (laughs) But that's what this says. How I long for all of you with the entrails and innards of Christ Jesus. The reason is twofold. Paul's longing for them is all wrapped up, double-backed, and intertwined. It's not enmeshed. That's not what we're saying. It's not losing identity or that kind of thing, but it is strong and lasting and alive. It is at the the core and essence of Christ Jesus that it is that he longs for them. It's not Paul's innards. It's Jesus. It's not Paul longing out out of his core, out of his strength, out of who he is, but out of his grounding in who Christ is, out of the center of who Jesus is, where, where the personhood is found. 
is where he longs for them because that's where he's met them. That's where they're both defined. To me, that's fascinating. And tender compassion, that's, that's beautiful language. We can use that language. But I think knowing that it's this deep, messy, grounded thing that involves the Philippians, that involves Paul, that involves Jesus, that is where this longing is stirred up. And then Paul turns his attention to love. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time here. And this is not original at all. You guys have heard this in sermons over and over. But we abuse the word love, right? We hear about how many different Greek words there are, and then we've got one silly English word. We need to make up some new words, but I'm not a linguist. So we'll just draw attention to this. We use the same word for what we feel about absolutely everything. And often we associate love with this like romantic feeling kind of love. And that's not wrong, we just need more words. That, that love is meaningful, we just need a, a lot more. So it's Valentine's week and we just walked through all of that recently. And I, I, was, I was thinking about these verses and how our culture celebrates love. And Mickey and I went grocery shopping on a Saturday because we like punishment. And we went through and, like, tripped for, like, five minutes over Valentine's. You, you notice that? Like, a, we just went to Kroger. There were so many balloons and flowers and, and things that I don't know any grown person actually wants, except for that day, all over the place. You, you couldn't find vegetables. You just found more flowers and more balloons and more stuffed animals and more of all of this that Nikki looked over and was like, are they really going to sell this by Valentine's Day? I don't think I don't think they did. I don't, I'm sure it's still on sale in the sale aisle. And it had me thinking that on January 1st, it's filled with people's resolution that we are going to save money this year and we're going to eat healthy and we're going to exercise. And by February 14th, we are spending every dollar we can find on every chocolate-covered everything. And and we're buying giant balloons to show that we love some grown person who does something professionally and we're buying giant piles of everything to show this. It, it kind of makes me laugh. And I think part of why we do it is we don't really know how to express love. We don't really have language for love. We, and, and there's social media and there's pressure and all this kind of stuff. So we just like, yeah, we're just going to buy piles of stuff and hope that somewhere in there we communicate it. I think our understanding of love is best shown by the quote from the theologian Buddy the Elf when he said, while spinning, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows about it. <laughs> That's what we imagine love to be, right? Or most often. There's other loves, but often we think of that one. And I'm not knocking romantic love, it's a gift. I still, after like half of my life, I still feel my stomach churn when I get to hold Nikki's hand or when we have moments together. But that feeling that makes you want to spin around or buy grown people four-foot teddy bears, there's more to love than just that. That's beautiful, but the love that we're reading about here is more than this. There's still some emotion involved, but it's more than just emotion. It's a posture. It's a choice. It's a way of engaging the world around us. It's a way that we're committed to make decisions and move throughout our day and be experienced by others. And Paul here writes about four facets 
of this kind of love that we're going to look at for a couple minutes, okay? The first facet is that this is a brilliant love. The love that we are to share with one another because of the entrails of Jesus is a brilliant love. Here's the verse, and this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. It is brilliant in the way that our eyes are drawn to it, because it's beautiful, but it's also brilliant in the way that we think and keep, can be brilliant. I don't, do you guys associate love with knowledge and intellect and brilliance? Paul, Paul says to. Paul says that this love that comes from the core of who G- Jesus is, is brilliant. It, it is to be brilliant in the way that it looks and is experienced, but also in the way that the thinking is behind it. The, the strategic way of posturing is behind it. The way that we choose to engage the world is brilliant. When we think of intelligent emotions, we don't often think of love, but the love that Paul is writing about is this type of intelligence. And in that, we get to be more courageous and risk-taking than others. It's to be filled with knowledge and insight. It's not to be a love where we're checking out of our brain and just following our emotions and calling it faith. It's something other. Bird and Gupta, these, these two theologians, said that knowledge and love are mutually necessary because knowledge without love is not edifying, and we know this from 1 Corinthians, while love without knowledge proves to be fleeting and faddish. We are a bit like Buddy the Elf if we're just love without any knowledge. We're just spinning and maybe we're cute, but we're not that transformative. But this love that we're invited into is knowledge. And they're married together to produce something focused and attentive, a posture that's transformative. But that's just one facet. He also says that this is an overflowing love. That's where this began, right? And I pray... And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more. And I think this is good news for us. Because most of us think about limits all the time. Right? Now there's a way to think of limits in a way that's very helpful for us. When we realize that we're limited beings. I hope that you know that. It's part of maturity. I hope that you know that there are boundaries that we need to set with people. That, that we need to experience rest and Sabbath, that sometimes the best thing to say is no. Those are limits that we need, but we also dwell on other limits. Will we have enough money? You know, there's a number that has been, been shown in, in like deep, detailed study that once a family reaches this income level, there is another money and another number of salary that is going to make them feel more comfortable and the number is not very high guys that that number in louisville is much lower than you would expect but once you get there yeah if you're below that there, there is some stress and there's some stuff but once you get there more money is not going to make it feel better More income isn't going to fix it. It's going to feel limited as long as you think of it as limited. And a lot of times, that's how we think. 
We, won't, we think that there aren't enough days or enough hours in the day. There's not enough health. We have questions and limits like, did I do enough for my kids? Or did I do enough at work? Or am I running out of, apparently the new one is water bottles. We don't have enough water bottles. Like, we think of limits all of the time, right? And here we have a letter from a guy in prison who has very, very little writing to his friends who are facing persecution and trouble and some infighting. He's like, no, this love that we are about is overflowing. It is abundant. This love that Paul writes about is not limited like my energy is limited. We can trust it to overflow because it is not sourced in you or in me or in us collectively. It is sourced from these entrails of Jesus. It is sourced from him. I've been reading about the the water crisis out west and how states are having to come to the table to negotiate who gets to draw water from the rivers. This is really tragic, where people are deciding which households get, get water and which ones don't. And sadly, it's rarely about households. It's often about which corporations can get water first and then which homes can get water second or third or fourth. And we're having to trust the kindness of the upstream states to leave some water for the downstream states. And they're coming to negotiating tables to see what this would cost. And this idea of limits is not going away. And so for our souls, we need to be set on the idea that though so much of this world is limited, we do not serve a God who is limited the same. And though we may have limited water or other things like that at some point, this love that God produces within us is to be abundant and overflowing. We need that to settle deep within us. Because this love that Paul writes about is not like the water supply. It's love that is sourced in Jesus so there is an abundance and an overflow as we become open to it. And what does it overflow with? Not just sentimentality, though there's some value in that. It overflows with this brilliance, with this knowledge, and with this third facet. This is a discerning love. The love that we we find in Jesus and we share together is a source for discernment. A good question to reflect on is how is it that you make decisions? Is it out of scarcity? Is it out of fear? Anxiety? Sometimes I'll make decisions because I'm just anxious and I want relief. And maybe that will give me relief. And what we see here is Paul is arguing that decisions are to be made out of the overflowing, brilliant love. There's different translations. And In the CSB, it says to approve the things that are superior. That's what this love is for. The NRSV says to determine what is best, or in the updated NRSV, to determine what really matters. This love is brilliant and overflowing in you so that you can discern, so you can determine, so you can decide not just where to go for lunch, but how it is that you want to live. Real practically, Not just in the clouds, but like in your real life. How are you going to spend your days? What is it that you want to be involved in? 
Like the Good Samaritan, we, we want to tangibly love everyone we cross paths with, but who are you going to be intentionally in front of? We'll love anybody we, we cross paths, but there is a choice that we make when we decide like where we're going to live, where we're going to uh, which coffee shop or restaurant is going to become our favorite? What grocery store we're going to? There's intentionality in these things. There's choices. There's discernment. Because how we do those things decides how we interact with the world around us. Nikki and I were talking about the algorithms of social media and how it it gives us fascinating things. And like for one, you can end up with all news of Turkey and Syria. And for another, you can get all news about what's happening at Asbury. And for another, you can get all news about the shooting in, in East Lansing at Michigan State. And all those things we want awareness of. But like we're, where are we giving our attention? What, what are we discerning? Who are we intentionally in front of, engaged with? aiming this brilliant and overflowing love towards. If your life is going to have a lasting impact, where are you called to live that life? Where's your home? Where's your work? Where are you spending your free time? Who are you committing to with the entrails of Jesus? These can feel like overwhelming questions, but they're actually the questions of love. It's not that we are saying that love is limiting, limited, it's that we're saying that love is that transformative and that the world is that desperate for it. And so as we live into this love of Jesus, it's not just a motive, it is a motive, but it's discerning. And the fourth, uh, actually, let, let me sit on that for another second. So there's the question in this of, of what, really, what really matters to you, right? As you're discerning. What really matters to you? But here's the thing with that. When you know what that is, go do that. We often just stay in what we stay in. This is what's familiar. This is what I know how to do. This love is courageous. We talked about that earlier. So do what matters to you. And this matters for us as a church, too. This is a question that we are currently asking. This is our leadership team is currently discerning. Be praying for us on this. We have kids within this church. We have families within this church that we can't fully serve right now because we sometimes collect table saws in the children's room because there's, there's ongoing projects. This has been a lovely space, but maybe if we're going to love well, maybe we didn't need to discern where we are. And as we discern where we are to be, then we need to discern who are the neighbors that we're to love, that we're to impact. Who are the people in my life who need this community that I need to be courageous and say, hey, come be with us. Come join us. There are people who are actively grieving and hurting. Okay, how, how can I be next to them? How can I help them as they grieve, as they hurt? How can I be honest about ways that I am actively grieving or hurting where physically do we need to be how do we need to get there who are we going to be when we arrive these are all areas of discernment that we have and we get nervous that we'll choose the wrong one 
But this love is out of the guts of Jesus, right? I don't want to be afraid of decisions. We get to be courageous people. We get to be because we're not just going on our own discernment. We're not just going on our own, well, this seems like, this feels like the best thing. No, this is a brilliant, overflowing, discerning love that comes from the core of who Jesus is. And so we can, we can trust that any misstep to the left or right that I make, God's there to meet along the way. So now to the fourth one. This is a productive love. It's a productive love. Look at what Paul writes. In the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus for the glory and praise of God. When I'm done with this year, I really want to look back and be like, God, look at what you did. Look at what you did. When I'm done breathing on this earth and my days are numbered, I really hope that the people who knew me look back and like, look what God did through that guy. Look at God's faithfulness. Not that everything will work out the way that I want it to. If we've hung out for any amount of time, you know that my life hasn't worked that way. I'm not wanting my my outcome on everything. I'm wanting it to be productive. I want it to produce something. Even the pain, even the, the mistakes, even the outright sin, even the relationships that didn't work out the way that I thought they would, all of that. I want it to produce something. Because otherwise, what, what is this for? And like we talked next week, or last week, it doesn't have to produce something in a minute. Just in the long run. I want this good work to be lasting and matter. I want it to be meaningful, and that's what we find here. Now, sometimes in our culture, we get hung up on this phrase, a pure and blameless, right? Pure and blameless seems like, well, I'm out. I, I couldn't make it 10 minutes today. Because we think it means this, this flawless, pristine, perfect life. That, it's not that it doesn't mean pure and blameless, but it doesn't mean pure and blameless as we interpret that, as we understand it. That's a good interpretation, but try this one out. For pure, another way that can be read is sincere. I want my life to be sincere. Okay, I can't imagine having this perfectly pure life, but sincere, I, I, I can live into that. You look up the Greek word, those fit next to each other. In some cultures, pure is a better fit, and some, sincere. If blameless seems, man, a little too lofty for you, what about without stumbling? Without tripping and falling and being miscounted, not completing the race, all of that. What if what we're really trying to get at here is in the name, in the day of Christ, you may be sincere and without stumbling, having produced this harvest or this fruit of righteousness. That, that sounds like good news to me. If I can live into these days sincerely and without stumbling, without falling over and staying down, that's good. That's faithful living. Just one more reminder. Anytime we see the word righteousness in the New Testament, that is a correct interpretation, but always put in there justice. 
because the word means the same thing. It means righteousness, it means justice. And sometimes it's just more helpful to see that in the day of Christ you may be sincere and without stumbling, having produced the harvest of justice. Doesn't that sound like what we want to be about here? People who have authenticity, people who are who we are, people who have tripped and stumbled but we don't stay down, or people who keep going, not for our own sake, but for the sake of justice. Because people belong. Because this one table that we've dreamt about, everybody has a spot there. And we're not going to stop until we see that. You see, this overflowing, wise and discerning love is the love where we are invited to live out in Christ Jesus to the end that we will remain sincere and not stumble our way through while experiencing the fruit of justice that can only come through Jesus. And to me, that kind of thing, with this kind of people, I'll add my amen to that. That sounds like good news. So that's Philippians 1, 6-11.